Welcome to the History Voyager podcast. My name is Benjamin Ketchings. As always, there's a zillion podcasts. Thank you for listening to mine. This is part of season one, which is a, I guess, a deep dive into this Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. I want you to consider this part of season one, but really it's part two of my talk about the societal ramifications of COVID-19. Now, I've taken several wags at this. And the reason I've taken several wags at this is because it's, you know, I have complicated feelings about all this. First off, as I've said before, and I will say again in this podcast, during my deep dive into the Spanish flu. The disease is natural. The pandemic is man-made. That has been made crystal clear to me during this time. Now, I'm going to have to explain a few things to some people, especially the, I guess, international people and also people I'm talking to in the future. Okay, now we had two different presidents before this one, one a Republican and one a Democrat. And they both of them had one thing in common, or at least one thing in common. But that one thing they had in common, as much as anything else, if not more, was both of them were very, very concerned about a pandemic's effect on the globe. So they had set up both Bush, I guess George W. Bush, and Barack Obama had set up a pandemic team that was widely hailed as the best pandemic response team on earth. Our current president, Donald John Trump, got rid of it for reasons that I'm not entirely certain of. Um, Now, I'm going to try not to go down rabbit holes of political conspiracies. But, suffice to say, the man got rid of it. And we're living with this today. We're living with this result today. Now, he also, there was a stockpile of what we call personal protective equipment and ventilators that was set up by William Jefferson Clinton during the time in which Bill Clinton was being impeached for his, I I think they eventually landed on an affair with Monica Lewinsky. Now, he sold off or got rid of, that is Donald John Trump, sold off or got rid of the vast bulk of that stockpile. Now, okay, he did that for, I don't know why, I'm not going to go into those reasons, but he did it. It's a settled matter of of fact that he did that. So that leaves us with what we have now. And also, we're much more vulnerable to a pandemic today than we were in 1996 or 7 or 8. You know, And the reason why is we're much more interconnected as a globe. 
I didn't realize this until I started doing research for this uh, this episode here. But it, a mind-boggling amount of our food, a mind-boggling amount of, of the food, the everyday food, not even the, uh, I guess, the high-dollar ingredients or the high-dollar food products, but the everyday food comes from China, Okay. That's got to stop. But it's the truth. I'm, I'm just a mind-boggling amount of our food comes from China at some point or other in its life cycle as a food product before it hits our shelves. Um, another problem we have, and this is interesting, uh, it turns out the city of Wuhan in southern China is just about the worst place in the world this pandemic could have occurred. Uh, the reason why is Wuhan, China is a basically a, a, a manufacturing locus of the world. Apple sends 50 employees a week to Wuhan alone. And you're talking car manufacturers, phone manufacturers, computer manufacturers, etc. and so on all across the globe and they're coming into China they're coming into Wuhan and they're going elsewhere and this disease was spreading for months before the Chinese government bothered to lock it down now let's add another piece of the puzzle here another piece of the the pandemic puzzle if you will is the fact that um, for a very long time, because it was new, you know, the received wisdom on COVID-19 was simply wrong. It was inaccurate. The World Health Organization was telling people that you couldn't have human-to-human -human contact. The Centers for Disease, Human-to-Human um, Contamination, sorry. The Centers for Disease Control in my hometown of Atlanta was saying that you, you know, people didn't need masks, and then they did. Uh, you even look at right now where, because of the supply chain problems, and also a little bit because of hoarding, but because of the supply chain problems, we here in Metro Atlanta have, you know, shortages of paper products. We have shortages of, of common everyday ingredients. And also, there's also this kind of a, a floating definition, if you will, of, okay, so they say, or at least they said in the past tense, that the only people who really needed to be concerned were people in medically fragile states or people with pre-existing conditions. Well, a lot of people, I mean, you look at asthma, right? Asthma is such a controlled and maintained, basically, affliction for a lot of people in this country that we don't even really think of it as a pre-existing condition. Well, some people don't. I certainly, I have asthma. I have pretty profound allergies to trees and grass, and I'm allergic to cats. Turns out all this is a pre-existing condition. Now, did the CDC come out and say that? No, I had to read about it on the internet. 
I mean, you know, come on, right? Stop with the floating definitions of what this thing is. Now, here's another thing going on. The fact that it, you know, in the month of March, a third of American renters did not pay their rent in March. You know, by statute in the state of Georgia, I think you're given 90 days until you have to vacate an apartment. All right, so let's think about that. We're what? 60 days away from a serious homeless problem? If not, you know, before that? Now, here's the thing, though. And this is what I want to gear the gentle listeners in America up for. You're going to hear the phrase, the word unprecedented a lot. A whole lot in the next several days. Now, the thing that you need to understand is because we're all sports fans, right? Because a lot of people have, have a great command of the English language, we're going to think about the term unprecedented in ways that we don't need to think about the term unprecedented. Okay, like, for example, when you say, oh, it's unprecedented for Cal Ripken to have played the number of games that Cal Ripken played, or it's unprecedented for, I don't know, uh, Steph Curry to, to hit the basketball goals that he hits, or LeBron James, or Kobe Bryant, or, or whatever. Okay, that's not the proper use of the word unprecedented. Because here's the difference. People, humans, have been playing basketball. So it's within the realm of possibility that humans could do what Kobe Bryant and LeBron James and Steph Curry did. Okay, humans have been playing baseball. So it's within the realm of possibility for a lot of people to show up a number of times and they're going to break a record set by Lou Gehrig. Okay, this is truly not precedented. This thing where the homeless problem we're going to have is truly not precedented. If you've got 27 million people believed to be unemployed in America, as I'm jabbering into this microphone, and you start thinking, Jesus, when all these people get to work or get to a stage where they can go to work, that's going to take a while because they don't have the, there's not the infrastructure to hire them because those people got laid off. And even then, you start thinking about the modern way in which people apply for a job, which is over the internet. Well, I don't know if you people realize this, but a lot of these jobs are basically like they use the high, the application tracking system to hire people. Well, that algorithm looks for people who did that job before. There's going to be a lot of industries that don't exist, that literally don't exist. So, I mean, you know, what do you do? So things are going to change. 
Now look, I'm what you would call a positivist, which means that I basically think that human beings as a species will survive. We're, you know, we're a resilient gaggle, us, as a species. I, I truly believe that. So I think that there's going to be changes that happen, massive structural change that takes place. I honestly believe this. Now, what do I think some of that change is going to be? Well, one thing is I look back on my generation, and this is the thing I look back on the most. And I see that we thought, or we were told, that, you know, living in these overpriced apartments was something desirable, something people wanted to do, etc. and so on. I don't know if that's going to be true anymore. I don't honestly know if when all this is said and done, if people are going to want to live in overpriced apartments or apartments at all. I mean, some of you people have doubtlessly been essentially shut in a one-bedroom apartment for I don't know how long, uh, what, you know, a couple of months or a month at this point. That's got to make you stir-crazy. I mean, you know, so is this going to be desirable to people? This this mode of living where you live in one a one-bedroom apartment, you know, is that going to be desirable to people? Another question I have is, you know, with all this teleworking people can do now that wasn't even possible 10 years ago or 20 years ago, right? So this teleworking, is that going to change the way world the world of work functions? Uh, possibly. Another question I have is restaurants. I mean, you mark my words, this is going to kill the restaurant scene. But then, okay, so get beyond that. Get beyond, admittedly, white-collar jobs and, and you know, overpriced apartments and, and the restaurant scene. Psychologically, this is going to impact people psychologically, right? And we're going to have to come to terms with the idea that we have a thought system in our culture today that they didn't have in 1918, right? Which is the last time America had to deal with this on, on any kind of an appreciable scale other than maybe the AIDS epidemic. But the last time, you know, with 1918, people in 1918, I've got news for you, people in 1918 were much more accustomed to sudden death than we are today. A lot of people in 1918 died of industrial accidents or farming accidents. Far more people than, than do today, you know. Um, so you, you think about, God, we need to come to the idea that part of the reason that we were so abhorrent, we so abhor this plague or whatever you want to call it, it's because, you know, we're so not used to untimely death. You know, is that going to change? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I also don't know if, I mean, you think about big business. 
big business in this country, in this world, frankly, has invested an awful lot of money in setting up essentially a global logistical situation that, you know, gets food across the globe cheaply. Is that going to seem sane in a year? Okay? Is the idea that I can buy a ham at the local grocery store that at some point in that ham's life as a product went to China and then came back. Is that going to seem sane to John and Jane voter? You know, in, a, in about a year? Probably not. Okay. Um, you know, so think about that. Does that mean that we in this country subsidize agribusinesses? Does that mean we expect small farmers to come online? I don't know how many of you people know it, but the, the age of your average small farmer is really creeping up there. And they're saying that that's going to be a sector of the economy that is essentially literally going to die off. You know, my, my home state of Georgia was very hard hit by Hurricane Michael a few years ago, um, as far as the agricultural section. Um, you know, and years and years ago, there was a Hurricane Opal came through and devastated the Georgia pecan crop. And, and pecans in Georgia were a serious business. And they still are. And then Michael came around and hit, and Hurricane Michael came around and did damage. But my question is, are we going to get back to that? All right. My next question is that there's an awful lot of land in this country that has been given over to growing non-staple crops. Okay, like almonds. Almonds are not a staple crop, right? So are we going to change that? Um, are we going to start growing corn and, and beans a lot more? Of course, we grow a lot of corn, and a lot of corn is actually grown for consumption by cattle. Is that going to change? You know, are, are we going to change the kinds of cattle we eat? Are we going to change, you know, because maybe we need to start thinking, and this is, this is where I'm coming from, just as, you know, somebody who's done research in this, and also somebody, you know, who's had to look at the logistics of food in his own life. You know, are we going to start thinking we need to set up a situation where all of the food we eat can come close, can come from close, wherever close is. I think so. I really do. Um, here's something else that I think is right now working kind of, you know, maybe a little bit against this is the fact that our government the, the methodology of our government was simply not set up to deal with a president who doesn't 
want to be basically an expert in something. You know, the, the, the idea that we've had about for, you know, since the 20th century, since Teddy Roosevelt, we've had this idea where we've taken governance by the three branches and we've gradually, ever since Teddy Roosevelt, well, ever since really Washington, but accelerating with Roosevelt, we've kind of funneled all this power into the executive branch from a far, you know, a far-flung country concentrated, well, not concentrated, but the power is concentrated in an executive branch. You know, a lot of the government is actually done in the field, a lot of the workers and such, but a lot of the decisions, especially at the high level, is in Washington. Now, you know, is it time to think about you know, maybe we need to start thinking about, you know, if you don't want to govern effectively for a, for a pandemic like this, maybe give over more authority to the local, you know, to the local government. And specifically, I'm talking about the planning commissions. You know, a lot of Americans live in a sort of a planning commission, right, that funnels money from the government, from the feds, into a metro area. There's an awful lot of people that live in within the power of planning commissions. And it's not power as much as it is authority to, to spend money that the government, you know, puts out. Is it time to maybe give more power to those? And I've really been thinking a lot about that. You know, a lot. And before the pandemic, and certainly during the pandemic, while the pandemic is happening, I've been thinking a lot about that. A whole lot. And I've also been thinking about this notion of, you know, we've got a country that you, you travel across, you know, you, you travel across it, and, you know, disease travels much faster than it did in 1918 you know you know AIDS it's been said was the first pandemic that traveled via the jet well not only does you know COVID-19 travel via the jet it also travels via the container ship and I think we're learning that you know and you know, that's whatever happened to like local produce. There's not a lot of local produce running around. Anyway, but I think there's going to be other changes too. Like, like, for example, you know, if you're not willing to be qualified, if you're not willing to think in a qualified manner, then we need to get maybe not get somebody who has, but you need to maybe devolve power to people that do, you know, right? I mean, let's face it. The more connected you are, the more pandemic things you're going to have, the more expertise you're going to need. You know, you look at Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci is... You know, he, unfortunately, he's becoming a little bit of a 
this is becoming a partisan issue and and that's that fits in with what pandemics are because the pandemic is always 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 is political there is always a political element and we're just living through that and when you look at the black death and you look at the you know the aids pandemic and you or, and you look at say the spanish flu all those all of those had a political element to them and all of those changes were made to you know ameliorate the effects of those pandemics on the population especially with the black death and especially with the spanish flu but i mean and that brings me and i've said this in this episode but i'm gonna say it again because it's such a stark stark difference there's something else is we've become more and more accustomed to fewer and fewer people dying in untimely deaths. As I'm talking about to you, a huge majority of people on the globe are literally sitting in their houses right now. This is for a disease that, yes, a whole lot of people have died from very suddenly. But, you know, it's not exactly... it. In no way do people think it's going to kill the percentages of the Black Death, for example. And so it's playing against our modern fears of, you know, a young death. Is that something that's going to have to change? Because here's something else I keep bumping into. And as I've said, I'm somebody with pre-existing conditions. So I'm happy to sit in my house and busily not die of COVID-19. But here's something else I've thought a lot about. Is eventually people are going to start thinking about this like let them eat cake. You know, like the line from Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. Lots and lots of people are going to think about that. They're going to consider that. You know, but then again, you have the piling death rates. I, I heard this morning that that 24,000 people had died of COVID-19 so far. You know, it, when you add in the probable deaths, 10,000 people have died in New York of COVID-19. And there's other unprecedented things. And here I go again saying that phrase, unprecedented. And I really do want to say, this is pretty crazy that the you have these eastern states that are, you know, bonding together and, and you know, sharing equipment. And you have these western states doing it. This was a role of the government. This was in not only theory but practice as a role of the government. And this right here is a change because of COVID-19. I guarantee you. This right here is going to change. You know, there was, um, when Hurricane Sandy was an essentially an unprecedented hurricane, or it was a precedented hurricane, but it did unprecedented damage in terms of dollars because of the value of the dirt that Sandy had hit. 
So uh, Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, essentially had come out and said that, you know, the government, the federal government, the a role of the federal government is to, you know, help out the citizens of the states. And that, you know, he said, I think you people, you governors with, you know, crooked borders or squiggly borders or whatever he said, need to think about that. And he was referring to coastline. Okay. Now, Chris Christie was diametrically politically opposed to Obama. They were political opposites. And here he was asking for and receiving help because that's what the government's role was. Now, you think about Katrina because, you know, you know, there was a federalism problem with Katrina, and it was serious. It was very serious. But it didn't last this long, I do not believe. It didn't go on for months and months. Like, this is still going on for months and months. You know, and, and you hear and you see reports and evidence of, you know, ventilators being diverted to hospitals where the patients can pay, right? And I guess that's the other thing. That's the elephant gorilla in the room here, is that because our, I guess, our healthcare system is was basically set up as a retail operation because it was set up as a job perk instead of, say, a basic right, we're going to have this problem. And here's something scary. I read that, you know... Seven million people are without health insurance now who had it before. But that's against, you know, 27 or whatever million unemployed. So a lot of those people who were employed didn't even have health insurance, apparently. So you think about that. And that's just right now. You know, that's today. What happens if this disease turns? Because it's new, so a lot of people don't know how it's going to turn out. What happens if this disease turns and you have basically unemployed people who get smacked with this virus? And then, because here's the other thing. Here's something that I learned in school that is wrong. That all politics is local. I would, I would add to that that all politics is local unless it's not. Because this is not going to be local politics anymore when people get on their phones and they see people dying. And they think, that could be me. I could be laid off. That could be me. And you're going to see that. You're going to see not only that and not only the fear of that, but you're going to see these structural changes play out in the world of work because the, the longer this goes on, the fewer people are, are going to think, the less people are going to think advertising, for example. Because they're going to be crammed in with other people. So they're not going to need new stuff. You know, the idea, the doctrine of planned obsolescence that we lived in is really going to be challenged here, I guarantee you. Because this is going to be a long time. This is going to be a very, very long time. 
before anybody gets to any flavor of normal. Let's remember that the 2008 crash was a market contrivance that did not have an underlying thing that undergirded it, that supported the, you know, a, re a real thing. Yes, there was a housing crash, but that was a market condition. This is a real thing. Okay, so here's my thought or whatever on the topic. If they cut the economy on, so to say, which what does that even look like? I mean, how do you cut an economy on? Because right now, all you really have is governors saying shelter in place and you can only go to certain places and really only if necessary. And there's a lot of businesses that don't want their people to come around because they don't want to get sick, right? So let's say, let's just say for the sake of language, that you decide to cut the economy on, so to speak, and everybody comes back in. Well, everything's going to work fine until people start dying. And in the day and age of the smartphone, in the day and age of Instagram, in the day and age of Facebook Live and Twitter, it's not going to take many people, ladies and gentlemen. It's not going to take many people dying. Who among us has seen that, you know, that young lady who was in the hospital who died of the vaping pen, who died of that lung condition from the vaping pen? That was a powerful image that went around the globe. Who among us has seen the YouTube video of the woman in Oklahoma who talked about her neighbor being a good guy as she was filming her neighbor's truck catching on fire from a Samsung phone? Remember, the, I think it was the Note 8 or the Note... Well, it was the Samsung Note that caught fire with a, because of battery problems. And it was only because of the, the video evidence of this that Samsung even wanted to fix the problem. All right. So my point is, it doesn't take a lot of people anymore. It just takes the right person in front of the right other person with a camera to send everything into a tailspin. And I think that's the thing people have to realize. It's not going to take a lot of people. It's going to take somebody that people identify with. Right. And then people are going to be like, I don't know. Do I want to go make $15 an hour or do I want to live? Right? And that's, I guess, the biggest legacy of this. Is do I want to make $15 an hour? Or do I want to live? So I don't know what's going to happen. I, I wonder if you're going to have small-scale agriculture. You know, in people's yards. And, and people say, well, and some people say to me, Ben, Ben, there's not a lot of people that are under, or 30 or under, or whatever, 40 and under that have yards, and that might be true today. Today. But how many of those people, ladies and gentlemen, essentially made a choice to go live in an apartment, to have a job and live in an apartment? And how many of those apartments are going to seem desirable later? And you think about this country was was basically settled by people that made a choice that was a hard choice to come from somewhere else to come here. So it is within the American DNA 
to say, I need to make a hard choice. A choice that I don't want to make, but I might have to. And I think you're going to see a lot of hard choices later. And that's going to be the hallmark, I think, of this year and next year. Or however long this takes. Is hard choices get made. And apple carts get upset. Anyway, thank you. And talk to you guys later.